So um, the big theme of the book of Matthew is Messiah. That's, this book was written to Jews. I, I know it feels racist to yell Jews out loud, but it's not. It, we're, we're talking about the Bible, and there's people in the Bible that are Jewish. And so this Bible is written by Matthew to people who are Jewish. And so this, uh, this main theme of the whole book of M- Matthew is Messiah. And what he's trying to help the people who are Jews see is that that man that's being talked about in the Old Testament, that Savior that's coming, he's the Messiah. And it, he's alive right now, and his name is Jesus. He is the coming Messiah. So he's, they, they were very acquainted with the Old Testament. And he's saying all that time, all those prophets, they're talking about somebody. He's here right now at his name, Jesus. So we've been going through the book of Matthew with this big, huge kind of theme of Messiah. And as we've been going through it, we've been taking you know, a few chapters at a time and giving it subcategories. And this subcategory that we're in right now, you can see is kingdom community. So in uh, verse chapter 18, kind of extending through chapter 21, we're looking at kingdom community, which means if you are in the kingdom community, if you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, then there's some things that you need to know about what being in that community looks like. It it tells us how to raise our children. It tells us what marriage is supposed to look like. It tells us what forgiveness is supposed to look like. When this particular parable here in verse 20, we're finishing a story from last week, the rich young ruler, where Jesus addressed the idols of people's heart. He wants them to understand, um, for this particular guy, he said, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. What do I need to do? And Jesus is like, no, you haven't. Um, Okay, sell everything, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the guy didn't want to do it, and Jesus let him walk away. And so, and that last week what we saw was Jesus addressed the idolatry of this man's heart, which is the commonality with us all. We all have issues of idolatry. With this particular man, it was money. And we talked about last week, it may not be money for you. You may be fine being broke, um, but it could be something else, relationships or whatever. Um, and so instead of thinking about money, lift, let's lift it up and think about what is the issue? It's idolatry. And we talked about um, idolatry last week. And then right after that, that little talk about idolatry and when the man walked away, Peter asked this little question. You know, Peter always has these great questions. Hey, that guy didn't follow you, but we follow you, Jesus. And then we plan on doing it for the rest of our life. Look, it says in 27, this is nineteen twenty-seven. Peter said, see, we've left everything. That man didn't leave everything. And we have, aren't we awesome? And that's basically what he's trying to say. And follow you, what will we have? What are we going to get? And Jesus answers him, um, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on. So he, he kind of gives them some ideas. He gives them what he, an idea of what they're going to have. Now, here's what's going on here. This particular parable that we're going to look at in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, is on the heels of that particular question of Peter, where he's like, what do we get for following you? What kind of rewards do we get? Uh, what happens? And so this, this parable, Jesus is trying to answer that particular question that Peter just asked. And he, if you notice, um, Brett, as he was reading in chapter 20, verse 16, you can see that verse that says, so the last will be first and the first last. last. If you look up the last particular verse in 19, it's the same verse. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So we have bookends here of this particular parable of those particular verses that basically say the same thing. And, and I know you know this, but in any kind of Bible reading and understanding, if something has bookends, we can pretty much guess the stuff in between um, is going to have to do with those bookends. So th- that's what's going on here. We're going to, Jesus in this particular proverb is going to explain for us the first will be last and the last verse, answering the question of Peter. And, and this is basically the kind of gist is um, Peter's like, what do we get? What do we have to, we've been following you. Certainly we're earning stuff. This whole life that I'm going to live for you, Jesus, I'm earning stuff, right? And in this parable, this is what Jesus is basically trying to say. Um, Peter, everyone that's a Christ follower, you're going to get eternal life, but you didn't earn that. I gave it to you. And in heaven, there's going to be rewards. And the rewards that you get are not on some kind of work-based system. You're not earning anything. Anything that I give you, eternal life or any rewards, anything I give to any person ever, is solely out of my graciousness. It's solely because I want to. It's my grace. I can extend it to whomever I want and how much ever I want based on what I want to do. That, that's the point of 15, verse 15, if, when he says, am I not allowed to do um, what I choose with what belongs to me? That's the whole point of the parable, is God's graciousness is being extended to people on his own desires that we are not earning it. Um, so 
that's kind of the big gist here of what's going to happen is, uh, in, in this particular story. Is it all depends on the grace of God. So as we're thinking about the grace of God, this, this sermon is about um, God's graciousness. Now, here's the thing. As we were reading it, you saw... Uh, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a master who goes out and he finds people who are idle. You can see that in uh, verse 3. And he says, saw others standing idle. It says it again in verse 6. Why do you stand here idle all day? And so, you know, I'm not creative, and, but I was pretty happy about this. The, the big title today is From Idle to Idle. You can see that right there. Look at that. From Idle to Idle. You see that little thing right there? I mean, I'm not creative, so I'm pretty happy about that. Obviously, you don't think it's cool, but I'm just going to think it's cool my whole week. So from idle to idle is what's going on here. We have the idolatry of the heart to the people who are idle in their lives, lazy Christians. And so that's what we're looking at today um, in this particular parable. Now, as I said, uh, any rewards we get from God are all based on the graciousness of God. So the big things that we're going to see today, there's going to be four things that you're going to see as we're going through this particular parable about God. Um, we're going to see four attributes of God's graciousness. There's some things we need to know about who God is. And all these things we're going to see are based on the graciousness of God. He is gracious towards us. Some of them might not feel gracious, but um, we'll explain why that is. Now, this is a... Uh, a very simple story uh, we've read. It's, it's, it's not very difficult to understand. It's, it's a pretty simple story, but it's also a difficult parable in some ways. Let, let me explain those two things, um, why I think it's simple and difficult. It, it's simple um, just because as we read it, at the very least, we can see that it's a story teaching us about the grace of God and salvation, that he can extend grace and save whomever he wants at any particular age that he wants, and he can save them. And when they get saved, um, whoever gets saved at eight gets the same eternal life as whoever gets saved at 80, and you're saved. And it's a pretty simple story, it's straightforward right that. But here's the difficulties. And remember, I, I know I've said this before as we've been going through parables. Parables are just parables, all right? Don't read too much meaning into parables. Don't try to say, is this a real story? And can I just find all the nitty-gritty details? Details are not the point in parables. The, the point of parables is to get the very end, get what Jesus is trying to teach. Don't get lost in details when it comes to parables. You know, the parable, the lost son, that's not a real guy. He didn't really, it wasn't a real guy that laid in pig slop. Um, there has been real guys that lay in pig slop, but not that story. Anyway, um, so we're looking at a parable here. And here's the difficult things about parable, about, about this particular parable is, we see a businessman paying wages to people that worked one hour and a full day, and he gives them the same thing. Employees, um, if you're in a company where you work an entire day and get you know, minimum wage times eight hours or whatever, you, know, you make $20 an hour times eight, whatever it is, if you work a full day and you get that much money, and then there's somebody else that works with you who works one hour, and they get the same amount of money, um, that's not good business. The employees eventually find out about that and don't like it. Unions get started for that kind of thing, right? Um, and so when we're reading this, we're thinking, huh, that doesn't seem right. Here's the second thing that doesn't seem kind of right about it. When that happens, equal payment being given to guys who work a full day, the guys who work an hour, um, when we read that, the, the thing I think that becomes troubling for us is that we, when we look at it, we say, this master, in our humanity, in our eyes, he just seems unjust. He doesn't seem fair. This isn't right. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about that in the very beginning because this is an attribute of God's graciousness that he is just. And so this is what makes this parable diff difficult. But we just got to remember, it's, it's just a parable. It's not real life. He has a, a point that he's trying to make at the end. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and jump into verse 1, and we're going to see attributes of God's graciousness. Verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is always teaching us about the kingdom of heaven, what it's going to be like, and its eschatological view, the, the end times view, the, you know, whenever he finally comes back with that second coming, the, when he's sitting on his throne, but also the kingdom of heaven, which he's already established now, the, the already and the not yet, and the, the weird kind of mystery of living in between those two things. He's explaining, he's constantly explaining that in the book of Matthew. And the kingdom of heaven is like, not just like, but like a master of his house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, vineyard isn't just chosen haphazardly here. It's not like Jesus is like, what can I do? A, uh, a car dealership 
or a video game store or a vineyard. I'll go a vineyard. That sounds good. It's not haphazard. Vineyard is chosen periodically by Jesus. You can see it in 21, 28 and following. There's another parable there. Um, and for, for vineyard being chosen, this is representative. This um, working in a vineyard is representative of the activity of the kingdom of the world. So here we are in this kingdom, this, this earth, and activity that's going on. Jesus will continually choose that metaphor of vineyard to, to teach us about working for his kingdom, working um, for things to happen for Christ. And so we see here, um, he's, he's going out. The, this is even just one other, I think, amazing thing. Uh, kind of a side note. The master, the master himself goes out early in the morning. If you keep reading, the, the likelihood is that 6 a.m. himself to go early in the morning to hire laborers. Big picture out, God himself is seeking sinners. God is seeking sinners. He's seeking you. He's not leaving you out there. Christ loves you. He is coming after your heart, just like this guy. He's seeking sinners. So here it says in verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers. So this particular story, the master goes out, he finds some people and he says, hey, I want to hire you to work in my vineyard. I'm going to pay you. It says, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, that just means day's wage. I know none of you probably have one in your hand. Um, it just basically means day's wage. It was a coin that was worth a day's wage. Um, after agreement with the laborers for his denarius, a, a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he's not some guy that just says, hey, come work for me you got to take this amount and shove it down your throat. I can pay you what I want. He actually comes up to the people and he says, a denarius is a day's wage. That's what's right. And I want to give you that. And they say, yes, I will come work for you for that. So there's a mutual agreement that's going on here. Not some master just hiring people and making them take what he gives them. So in the very beginning, I want you to see an attribute of the graciousness of God is this. Right here in verse 2. God is just. This is key. This is so key for the rest of this parable. If we don't understand that God is just, we're going to misinterpret the rest of the, of the parable. We need to let that truth drive us through or permeate through the rest of these particular verses. Because when it gets to the end, where we feel like, wait a second, how's he paying those people the same thing? God is just. There's an agreement. This is a right, fair wage here in this particular parable. Now, um, let me... Uh, let me drive up out of the parable here and, and put this in what's kind of going on in real life for us just so we can get a perspective because it's easy to kind of get bogged down in the, in the parable details. Um, what's going on here in the justice of God that we need to understand is, um, I want to explain it to you in Romans chapter 3, but here's what's going on. When we say God is just and he can choose whom he saves um, is in the Old Testament, you've got man after man after man, Adam, who sinned against God, Noah, David. Um, you've got all these particular people on and on who continually sin and continually sin. And so <clears throat> the universe, all of creation, all of humanity can look at this and say, okay, God, if you're holy, if you are holy, and it's not until 2,000 years ago where Jesus died, where sin was punished, all that time before Jesus, before sin was punished, from that moment, from Adam, there was a building up of history of people who deserved hell. But after Jesus, we can say, okay, payment has been made, they can go to heaven. But at that particular moment, before the cross, all the way before, we can look at the Old Testament and we can say this. Um, this doesn't seem right. People who are sinners, choosing to sin, are going to heaven. But God's holy, and if he's holy... How are they getting into heaven? Why is Adam, why is David, why is Moses, why is Noah not in hell? They sinned against God. How are they getting in heaven? And so what we can see is this. Um, we know that there was a, a payment, an animal sacrifice that was made every year. They would make these animal sacrifices. But God tells us clearly in his word that these animal sacrifices were never, ever sufficient, never, ever um, going to be a perfect atonement for people to actually go to heaven. Those sacrifices would not achieve eternal salvation. But yet, people are going to heaven anyway. That's confusing. And so the outcry of humanity can be, God is not just. How are people going to heaven whenever no payment has been made? Let, let me put it in terms for us. 
if you have a, a family member dear to you and a heinous crime has been committed against them and the judge says to the person that did it, um, they can just go out on the street. Your loved one who may not be here anymore or severely, severely damaged in some way um, has, has, has something happened to them and that person doesn't go to jail, doesn't for life, doesn't get whatever you know, crime would say. They just get to go out. Everything in you would scream out, injustice, that is wrong. That is completely wrong. Cosmically, on a much larger scale, that's what's been going on until Jesus Christ. This is not right. God just can't pass over sin and act like it didn't happen. Anger, which he rightly has towards the sin, has to go somewhere. And it hasn't gone anywhere. How is he angry at them for their sin, including us, but yet they're going to heaven? Paul sees this. And Paul knows that God's justice is being called into question. And we're going to drop in on Romans 3 and see why God is just. And apply it back over to us from Matthew 20. Look at Romans 3. For all, this is 3.23. If you have your Bible, you can flip there. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm at Romans 3.23. If you don't, just, just listen. I tend to not be able to read very long anyway without talking. Um, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person ever has sinned. Every single person has fallen short of what God says. Here's my law. You do that. Everything's okay. Every person sins against God's law. Therefore, every person rightly, rightly deserves the wrath from God, which would mean when we die, we go to hell. But in the Old Testament, that wasn't happening. There were people going to heaven. And it, so Paul's saying everybody's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and um, are justified. So wait a second. People are being justified. How is that happening? They're justified by grace as a gift. So does this mean that God's just haphazardly saying, we can go to heaven anyway. I'm not going to worry about your sin. That's not what's happening. Something happened at this particular moment when Paul's writing this, just before he wrote it. They have been justified. They have, um, God has demonstrated that he is just in some way through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus Christ has done something. He has done something to redeem mankind in that anger was then poured out on him for us. He became the perfect atonement. That's why he's the sacrificial lamb. Animals could never do, but something about Jesus made it so that whenever he was sacrificed, that's all that ever happened forever. This is what it says. The redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as the propitiation. Well, this is starting to get pretty interesting. The propitiation means the absorber of the wrath. God said, I'm going to not just kind of discount sin. I'm not just going to look for someone to finally come along that I can put my wrath on. I'm going to take care of the situation myself by putting my own son, who is God, forward for them. Now we're starting to understand when I say God saves sinners and pursues them. This is amazing. He certainly did not have to take care of our sin problem for us. But from eternity past, he knew that we were going to sin. And so he said, I'm going to take care of that by putting forward my son. And instead of pouring all of my righteous anger on you, I'm going to put it all on him. He's the God man. And the reason why he is able to absorb all the wrath of God for us is because not only was he man, but he was also God. Man wouldn't have been sufficient. We would have been sinner. He was not sinful. And that's why he was able to absorb all of the wrath of all the sin of all the Old Testament saints and all of us and all the people that will ever live that are, that are his children, all that sin, had, that wrath had to go somewhere. And it says here um, that God put forward his own son as a propitiation by his blood. So we know we're talking about the cross now. The cross of Jesus is where all of this wrath of all the sin that had ever been built up by God was poured out on him for, for, that had been built up for all, all time. And it says... Um, by propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. So we can, we can be beneficiaries of what Jesus has done for us if we put our faith in his work. If we say, that should have been me. I believe that he took my place. I confess my sin. Please forgive me of my sin. Then we can now be beneficiaries of what Jesus did for us. Now here's where it gets, ah, this gets so awesome. Watch this. This was to show God's righteousness. Everybody's saying, God's not righteous. God's not just. And he's saying, the cross is the greatest demonstration of my justice. And he says, this was to show his, God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, meaning God's 
patience, he was allowing sin to keep building up, keep building up, but he was letting them go into heaven, letting them go into heaven, and nothing was happening. Anger was never being poured out, and it says, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, meaning he had let the Old Testament saints' sins continually build up. And then finally, at this particular moment when Jesus came, all of his wrath was poured out on them, which covered all their sins that were in him and all of us. And this was to show his righteousness at the present time, as Paul is writing. At that time Jesus lived, the cosmic universe is now screaming, God is just! He did take care of sin. He poured it all out on his son. And it was to show that he was righteous at the present time so that he might be just. And this is the best part. And not only has he demonstrated that he's just, and he's the justifier. That's crazy. This is like, this is like the judge who says, yes, I'm going to pour out all the punishment on you who receive it, but instead of you, I'm going to take my own son who didn't do anything and I'm put him and he's going to take all your punishment and you get to go. But on a cosmic scale for eternity, he said, I am not only just, but I am the justifier. I'm going to let you be free if you by faith receive what Christ has done for you so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so we know from the scriptures, that God is just because he has taken care of our sin. He has appeased his anger. The propitiation propitiation has been made by Jesus, the wrath absorber of us. So let's bring it back down into the parable. I know I had to bring it up just so that we can see. We need to know that God is just. And so as we go through this particular parable the rest of the way, if we start feeling, wait, God's not just, back up. He is so just. He is so just. He put forward his own son for us. And so here we go. Back into, uh, back into verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle. Here we go. We see people standing idle, not doing anything in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. Now, this is, this is different. He hired people at 6 a.m. He says, I will give you, there's an agreement. I'm going to give you a full day's wage. Yes, 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 good, good, good. All right, good, go. Go in the vineyard. And he goes back out here, and it says, going about the third hour. So this is around 9 a.m. There's still a lot of work day left. He goes around, around 9 a.m., and he sees people standing there, and he's like, why are you just standing here? I don't know. Nobody's hired me. All right, I'll hire you then. Just notice the persistence of God and going and getting people, we're going to see it. 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. Like, he is, because he's God, deeply desiring you. There's no lack of his pursuit of his children. And so we, we see this here. He goes, what are you doing here? I don't know, I'm just standing here. I'm waiting for something. And he says, you go to the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. Now, that's a little bit different. There's no agreement of a denarius. We've already said God's just, and so we can believe since God is just, whatever the payment's going to be for these particular people, it's going to be right because God is just. Whatever he decides to give them is going to be right. Keep going. So in verse 5, um, so, they went go, so they went going out again the sixth hour and the ninth hour, just let the, the beautiful nature of God's persistence in um, winning his children to Christ amaze us and, and cause our hearts to be stirred for him. Um, he did the same. He went out again. And even about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., he went out. I mean, for us, 5 p.m., dinner time, quitting time, go home. Let's check out the news. Let's check out Sports Center, whatever it is you do. Um, 11th hour, he went out and found others standing there. And he said to him, why are you just standing here idle all day? Let's just stop here and let's just think about this for a second. Now, in this particular parable, um, I think that the point of some of the things he's trying to make is Christians um, being called to salvation. But we also can look at Christians uh, who maybe were saved young in life. And then you kind of go through this entire life and you have these ebbs and flows of how, you know, on fire you are for Jesus and how not on fire you are for Jesus, which is, is dangerous words because we know in Revelation 3, it says, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out my mouth. So we don't want to find ourselves. It's better you're cold or hot, not in the middle. But it seems like our experiences, right? We're always in the middle. Um, and so here, uh, what I want you to see about this, the, the, the second attribute about the, the character of God, the, 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 um, of God, about God's graciousness is this, is God is 
terribly concerned with Christians' idleness. Now that feels like, that's not, that's not God's graciousness. If my wife is terribly concerned with my idleness, I just feel like that's her nagging, right? I'm not saying she's nagging. No, I mean, I should have used a different, if your wife is terribly concerned about your idleness, that just means, I don't want to call your wife a nagger either. So you get my point, right? But we think, okay, this doesn't feel like graciousness. This doesn't feel like graciousness that he's terribly concerned about my idleness. It feels like he's just kind of on my case a lot. It feels like I'm back in high school and it's Saturday and I'm being woken up at 7 a.m. to go build a fence. I'm tired. I'm 15. You know, I'm bringing out old stuff. So anyway, um, my point is, is that with God here, the nature of him, the nature of him pursuing you and never letting you be satisfied with being idle for him is out of his graciousness. He's not nagging you. It's not a cosmic nagger. He's a father who loves you perfectly and wants you to walk with him and commune with him and live for him with all the abilities he's given you. And so God is terribly concerned with Christians' idleness. Now, a couple of things I want to try to apply here for us as we're looking at this. For those of you that aren't Christians, for those of you that say, I, I know that I'm not a believer, I, I'm, I'm, I'm exploring, I'm trying to figure out this thing about, about who Jesus is, I want you to, as you're reading this, I want you to hear this. Um, whatever road has brought you to this particular path today, where you're sitting here, I want you to notice how God doesn't stop coming. You may get saved at eight, which I don't think you will, if you're here and you're not a believer, because you're probably over eight. Um, but you may get saved at 20, you may get saved at 30, you may get saved at 50. But the point I want you to see here is God wants you to be his child. He loves you deeply. And if you are feeling called, it's because he wants you to be called. He wants you to be his child. He gave a son so that you can be his child. Confess your sin, trust in Jesus for forgiveness, and come to him today. Just like Jesus keeps pursuing these people at any, any part of the day, he's going to keep doing that for you because he deeply loves you. Let the love of God compel your heart to say, yes, I want forgiveness. That, that Romans 3 text where I see the love of Christ being displayed for me, that his anger has been poured out on Jesus, not me, that made my heart explode. Yes, I want Christ. And I'm saying, put your faith in Christ today. Now, for those that are Christians, as we're kind of talking about idleness, I want you to just... Just hear this. I want, I want to say this as, as loving, as pastorally as I can. God does not want you to waste your life. He doesn't want you to waste your life. He didn't give you, it's not like he saves you and, and ports you up to heaven. He keeps you here for a reason. He wants you to live for him and for his glory. So know that he is going to continue to confront your idleness your laziness, your apathy, your lethargy, whatever word you want to say. He's going to continue to do that because he wants you to live for him. Not because um, doing that earns more rewards, but because of what he's done should cause your heart to explode in joy for him and say, I want to do that. Yes, he saved me. Look what he's done. I want to do everything I can for him. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, you just got to love Spurgeon. He's a guy that lived about 150 years ago in England. He, he was uh, writing on this particular uh, section right here, and he said, um, Oh, that those around us who are in their rising manhood, we can say girls too. Spurgeon's not a hater of women, so he, we can put girls in there. Oh, that are around us who are rising in their manhood or are rising in their womanhood. Would you at once take up your tools and now begin to serve the great Lord? So as he's looking around in England, he's looking 150 years ago at the young people that are girls and boys and saying, there seems to be a ma- an amazing laziness here with these people. Would you, would you come on and say, don't waste your life, but start taking up your tools, as it were, and serve the Lord with gladness all of your life? Would you come and do that? And at the end of your life, when you go to the Lord and look at him face to face, you're going to say, Where's my rewards? No, you're going to say, it was a pleasure to live for you. It was a pleasure to live for your glory. Thank you so much for saving me. That's going to be the response of our lives. It's going to be a response of our hearts as we look at him. So he is deeply concerned. He is terribly concerned with a Christian's idleness. 
He doesn't want us um, to be idle. Now, here's the most amazing thing. This is, the most, I think, one of the most amazing things. If you've been a Christian for, uh, for a long time, let's say you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and you say, it's just too late. I can't, I can't be what, what this text is saying. I can't be now on fire for Jesus. I, I just say that's not, that's not what the text says. He calls them at the later part of the day, hey, go in the vineyard. And what do they do? As a 60-year-old who finally sees the gospel and understands what Christ has done, jumps into that vineyard and gets to work. So even as a 60-year-old, he's saying, don't waste your life. If you are feeling a turn now in your heart to start living for Christ, say yes to it. God can teach an old dog some new tricks. He can, I promise you. And that's a weird little thing, but it's the best I could come up with in here. So um, keeping on here in verse 7, it said, They said to him, because he has... He's not hired us. Why are you standing here all day? Because no one's hired us. It's the 11th hour. He says, you go to the vineyard too. So here we see even at the the late ends of their life, he calls them out. Now, this next little section about the graciousness of God, this is really going to mess with our minds. We're like, this seems not so gracious, but you're going to see why it is. Look what happens here. And when evening came, this is so funny. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, so the owner is Jesus. He said to his foreman, I don't know who that is. It's a parable. Peter, pick someone. We'll all be wrong. Um, Call the laborers and he said to his foreman, I want you to be the the payer. Um, And so maybe it's, you know, who knows? It's a parable. So he calls them and he says, call the laborers. And this is not what we think happens. He says, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. He doesn't say, those that I called at the very beginning, and we had that agreement, give them their denarius and let them go. And then call in the next crew into a room and say, hey, you came in. I want to do what's right. Here's the nearest and let them go. And then on and on, like separately. He doesn't do that. He actually brings them all up there together. And so here's the people that are standing over there who have been working the whole day. And he says, everybody come here. Oh, you got here and you worked the last hour. Here's your denarius. And they all see that and they're like, oh, denarius? And he goes on down the line. So we can just imagine as we're getting down to the people who've been working the whole day, what they're thinking. If, if they're standing there and the 11th hour got a whole denarius, and you're thinking, well, I worked three times. That's right. Yes, he's going to pay me more. I know we had that agreement of a, of a denarius, but he gave him a denarius. I worked three times. I got to be getting three times that. I got to get three. She's going to be so happy with me, and we're going sizzler tonight. I'm so excited. And so you can just see he's, he's got these things going up, going up in his head. And so all of a sudden, look what happens. He says, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last. Why would he do the last? Why would he pay him the last? Well, I think the bookends maybe give us a little bit of idea, right? So the first shall be last and the last first. Maybe that's why he's deciding to bring the last first. But um, I think another reason why is this. <clears throat> he wants those who work the whole day to have something stir up in their hearts. Wait a second. Is that right? Can, is God really? Look what happens. It says it in verse 11. Um, and one receiving it, those who are at the very end, on receiving it, they grumbled. They got a denarius, what they agreed upon, and it says they grumbled. They got mad. And you're like, why is God causing people to grumble? He could have just, I mean, it's a parable. But why is he doing that? This happens in our life. Perhaps you've grumbled, right? Um, here's the thing about God's graciousness I want us to see in this. Um, it says, call the laborers, begin with the last. And when those hired, about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Like, oh, yes. I'm going out tonight. But each of them also received a denarius. They got the same thing as everybody else. And they saw it. I mean, everybody saw it. And they, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Here's the third thing I want you to see about God's graciousness is this. And this, you might not say it's graciousness, but it is. God is never done with his children. And what I mean is in regard to your sanctification and your idolatry. He's never done with you. There are going to be circumstances that are going to happen in our life that are going to not cause you to sin, but reveal and expose the sin that's already there. That's who we are. We don't choose to sin. It's already there, and it's just exposed. And so that's what's going to happen here. They're going to grumble. They're going to have exposed sin. Um, Now, before you say, wait a second, that doesn't seem right about God. How can he do that? Before we all start calling his character into question, let's go back up to point number one. 
God is just. Remember Romans 3? And if you just need more, look down at verse 15, where he says, Am I not allowed to do with what I choose what belongs to me? So God's not unfair here. God can do whatever he wants. And out of his graciousness, that doesn't feel gracious, but it is. Out of his graciousness, he's going to let us see sin in our lives so that we will, as it's exposed, want it to be put to death. Not just say, well, I'm fine with that sin. I'm just mad. So the overall trajectory of our lives in regard to becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy, means we are, you know, as we get saved, here we are, and we're, we're working our way, not working, but we're being sanctified, I should say, as we go to heaven. We're becoming more and more like Christ. We're becoming more and more holy. Now, it may not feel like this, but the Bible does say that the overall trajectory of our lives of sanctification is that we're becoming more and more like Christ. I know for all of us, it kind of feels like um, I had this one little blip and then I went down and I was like this for a long time. And then I went up like for, that lasted like 30 minutes. And then I went down again. Like there was one really point where I was at went someplace and I felt really, really holy. And then I walked outside and I yelled at the guy. And so, and it lasted for like four months. And then I had this one little blip again. But the, what was true is the overall trajectory is that we're actually moving up. We are moving on a path towards Christ likeness throughout our entire sanctification, which is just the process of becoming more like Jesus after we get saved till we go to heaven. It's called sanctification. And God wants us and is going to continually, through that process of sanctification, help us see the idols in our life so that we will become more like Jesus and kill that sin in our life, not just to make us grumble. So he's not done with you. He's not done with the sin in your life. You're going to continually see it. And him doing that is a sign of his graciousness to you, not anger. So when you sin, it's not because God's mad at you. He, he's letting you see that so that you'll become more like Christ. Spurgeon says this, As soon as the penny was in their hand, a murmur was in their mouth. Let's just let Remedy Church not be a church of murmurers complainers. Let's just be people captivated by the gospel, so enamored with Jesus for what he's done for us, that any gracious act that we receive, we are joyful, and any gracious act that others receive that maybe we thought we were entitled to, we're not resentful, but we're joyful for them as well. We're not murmurers. We are recipients of grace upon grace upon grace, which is, I'm giving away my fourth point. Because as we look at that third one, we can, re- we can be like, man, oof, that doesn't seem like that's fun. But this next one is, I think, what I want us to really concentrate on. Let's go back to verse 9. Instead of putting ourselves, because I know we all think we are, you know, the hardest workers, that we work 12 hours a day for God, and everything we do is always for Him. More than likely, <laughs> you and I, truthfully, might not be. We're probably somewhere in the middle, and maybe some of you are the 11th hour people that just kind of showed up. You got your trimmers out. You cut anything. Oh, it's pay time. Let's go. You know, I cut one hedge. Like some of you might be that way. Um, so I think we're more than likely, truthfully, somewhere on that side. And so what I want to highlight for us in regard to God's um, graciousness to us is not just that he is going to expose sin in our life, but just how amazing he lavishes his love on us. Look at this. Let's read nine again. Let's look at this. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Take your mind out of being the, the ones who got there at six and put your mind in those people at the end. You got there the 11th hour and you received eternal life and rewards from God just like them. What is your heart's response right there? I know mine. Whoa! Thank you, Jesus! Whoa! That is amazing grace. I was reading this past week where um, John, there's a guy named John Newton that wrote a, a, a hymn called Amazing Grace. And then J.I. Packer, he's another guy, he's an author, he's writing and he's saying, back in the old days, they wrote of amazing grace. Today, and J.I. Packer was writing this in Knowing God maybe 50 years ago or so. He said, amazing grace has turned into boring grace because we're not captivated by the gospel anymore. We're not thinking that, Most of us are these 11th hour people who've received grace upon grace. Astounding, lavishing love has been given to us. We're murmurers over on the side wanting to know why we're not getting more. And so the fourth attribute of God is this. This is is the fourth one. God lavishes out blessing and his love 
on us more than we can comprehend. That's what he does for those 11th hour, and I would say maybe even some of the other ones. And more than likely, let's just be honest, we fall under this fourth point of God's graciousness far more than we realize. I know we, we tend to identify more with that third one. <laughs> Sin's always being exposed. But the truth is, you are receiving lavishing grace and love so much in your life. That's his grace towards you. And perhaps we're just, we're just blind to see it. Let me read one verse to you in Ephesians that tells us about this. It says, In him, in Christ, we Christians have received redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which is what we talked about when we looked at Romans 3, according to, here it is, the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. I want you to think about this. There's never going to be a time where Jesus is going to go bankrupt in extending grace. You can't bankrupt his grace. He will continually keep giving you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. There's no debt ceiling for him. It's just he can give as much as he wants to when it comes to grace. Of which he has lavished upon us. We've received the riches of his grace. How did he do it? Haphazardly? Like, maybe you can get it, whatever, fine. It's, it's that he lavished it upon us. He has lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. So this is amazing grace. Out of his graciousness as an attribute that he is giving to us. Pouring out on us. To us. So as we're looking at the rest of the story, let's see what happens. And it says... Um, in verse 11, we can see that they grumbled. And verse 12, it says, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, like, eternal life times two. If someone gets saved at eight or someone gets saved at 80, you don't get the extra heaven. It's just eternal life. It's eternal life. Um, Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Verse 2, after agreement with the laborers for a denarius. So they agreed to it. I gave you eternal life. You got to be a child of mine. Why are you murmuring? You, you know God. You are a child of God. And then he says, take what belongs to you and go. Now, don't this is a parable. Don't say, well, Jesus is kicking people out of heaven. That, it's not, he's not losing salvation. It's just a parable. It's, don't read that in there. He says, I choose, to give to, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. God saves whoever he wants to at whatever age he wants um, and blesses them whatever he wants. You don't earn. Peter, what do I get for following you? You get eternal life, and if I choose to give you blessing, you get it. I decide who gets blessing based on my graciousness. Uh, and he says, 15, am I not allowed to do with what I choose what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? That's just, it's a pretty condemning statement maybe for some of us. We don't ever want to be found as people who are begrudging the generosity of God. You didn't give me enough, God. Well, what's fair is hell. And anything other than that is amazing grace. So never ever begrudge the generosity of God. And then he ends it. So the last will be first and the first last. So here is um, the summation of this is that we're seeing is that God gives good gifts to his children simply because he is God. And because he's God and he's good, every gift he gives to his children must be good. And they are distributed freely by him. They're not earned by us. They're distributed freely to us simply because he is gracious. So I was reading, I want to I Sort out something for us. I was reading one commentary. Um, you know, Mr. Calvinist, this is what he says. I tend to read those, I know. But anyway, so he says this. Um, this, this Calvinist guy, he says, God owes us nothing. And whatever, he's looking at this text. God owes us nothing. And whatever we receive from him, we receive only because he's gracious. So here we are. We don't deserve anything. And God just says, I can give whatever I want. And I can give it to you if I want. And if I choose to do it, it's only because I'm gracious. And I just want to, this is true. Calm down, Mr. Calvinist, but let me also remind you one thing. The reason why he does it is not just kind of, I can do whatever I want. The reason why God does this, yes, he gives it to us. Yes, we don't owe it, own it. Yes, we didn't deserve it. But God loves us extravagantly. Let's not divorce or remove the fact that the reason why he is pouring out grace is because he loves us deeply. 
He's not just giving it to us because he has to. He loves us deeply. That's why he's doing it. Um, D.A. Carson commenting, he says, In the kingdom of God, the driving force is not merit and ability as in the world. That's how we get stuff in the world. Merit and ability. But in the kingdom, the driving force is not merit or ability. There's no earning. It's grace. It's God's grace. So as we're looking at the first shall be last and the last shall be first, which is really the, the point of the passage, let me give us some closing applications of what I think we can take away from this. Um, the first thing is a disciple of Jesus should not measure his or her, or her worth by comparing it with the accomplishments and the sacrifices of others. You're not more important to God because you can do X, Y, or Z and the other person can't. There's always going to be someone else who can do more things for the kingdom than you. And there's always going to be someone else who's going to do less things for the kingdom of you. And that in no way determines your value and worth. It's all because of Jesus' grace. So we need to have the right mindset, not who's doing more than me. I need to buck it up. It's <laughs> be faithful with who you are and what you've been given and do it because you love Jesus. The next thing is this I want us to see is that there are many that will be saved at a later point in life that will have a deep, passionate, authentic um, love for God. And for those of us that get it early in life, we certainly should not be angry that they got it later in life and somehow we've worked in the scorching heat of the day and they're getting the same thing as us. That's not being thankful for who we are and that's certainly not being thankful for what Christ has done. Um, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, and Christ deserves all the glory for whomever he saves whenever he saves them. So here's the last thing I want us to look at is this. Um, a couple other things. Um, that always just means, you know, I got as long as I want to go in preacher world. Um, young people, I want to give you a little bit of an exhortation. Um, do not wait, specifically as you're believers, do not wait to serve God. If you've been saved at a young age, don't put it off. Don't say, well, I'll just stand here in the marketplace twiddling my thumbs and playing Halo and get really good at that. By the time I'm 30, when I'm an expert Halo player, then I'll go work for Jesus because that Halo skills is going to be really good for the kingdom. Like, no, it's not. You can certainly work for Jesus and not be good at Halo. Peter knew not, Paul knew nothing about Halo um, or whatever video game you like. Um, don't be idle. Do not wait to serve God. Start now and serve him with all your might and love him deeply and be willing to do whatever he calls you to do because of what he's done for you. And as I said, when you see him face to face, you're going to say, it was my pleasure to receive this grace and be able to serve you. You're not going to say, you really took away a lot of my fun and I finally started following you at 40, but I, I had a lot of fun that you kind of took away that I could have done the second half of my life. Young people, start following him early. You will never regret living a life for Jesus your entire life. For eternity, that's not a regret. You'll regret it at the end of your life if you look back and you haven't. And let me just couple that as I'm talking to young people, to, to more seasoned people. God called them at the 11th hour. What'd they do? They left that marketplace and they got in the vineyard. Retirement should not be an option for a Christian. As Piper says, we, we're not called at 60 and 70 to go collect seashells on the Florida seashore. We're called to go give our lives for Christ, even at the end. What a, what a great gift it is as we're living older now, when we're empty nesters, to use that last part of our life for mission trips for the God's glory and not just boating and seashell collecting. Or whatever it is that, you know, is your hobby that you spend all your days doing instead of living for Christ. With everything that you could. Here's the last little takeaway I want to I put is this. What else can we learn from this particular parable? I see God saving people in the 11th hour of their life. So a young person whose heart is broken for your parents... Don't you give up on them. Your grandparents, your older brother and sister who break your heart continually, they're just 40, 50, 60, and it seems like they've become more hard-hearted 
to the gospel than anything else. Don't you give up on them. I see God saving people in the 11th hour. This is the God we serve. He saves people at the very end of the day. And so you keep fervently praying for them and you keep fervently sharing the gospel with them. And they, God could be gracious to extend to them the same salvation that you have, even if it's at 85 years old. You don't give up on them. As long as they are drawing breath in their lungs, you keep telling them about Christ and what he's done. I think that's a big takeaway for us. We're going to go into a time of worship here where if we've truly heard from God and his word, if we've truly heard from him, then the only proper thing for us to do is respond the way the Holy Spirit would be leading. And so I want to read one verse to us that we've, um, we've already read, but let it be maybe the, the springboard into our time of worship. It's Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. As we consider this lavish love that God has poured out to us. Let that be the springboard as we have a few songs to think and contemplate and pray and maybe stay seated and eventually stand. And however God has wired you to worship, we've got some space here for you to be obedient by the Holy Spirit to do that. I'm going to read this verse and you just be obedient over these next few songs to let the Spirit do His work in your heart. And if you want to stand and worship, then stand and worship. If you want to read the Scriptures and pray, I invite you to do that. Ben will lead us in a time of worship. But let me read this. In Him... In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Every sin that you and I have committed has been covered. God poured out the anger on Jesus for us. And now all we have is right standing. All we have is right standing. Why did he do it? According to the riches of his grace that never run out, which he lavished upon us. Just let that sink in. Close your eyes if you need to. Just waves after waves after waves of mercy and grace and love and blessing falling on us from Jesus. This is what he's saying. By blessing, I don't mean material. I mean the blessing of him, of knowing him, of being a child of his. We're experiencing that forever and we'll experience it perfectly forever. And he did it in all wisdom and insight. That's reason to worship. That's great reason to give him the glory. I'm going to pray, and however the Spirit's leading, I just ask you to be obedient to it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you are gracious. And when I am prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, You draw me back in, change my mind, change my heart, sanctify me where I say, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for the courts above. It's only because you are so gracious to us. Let that amazing grace sink down deep into my heart and soul. All of us. And may we worship you rightly because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.